Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 634th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Greg Peterson coming to you from the Urban Farm in the heart of Phoenix, Arizona, and I am here with Bill McDormand. Welcome, Bill. Hello, Greg. Glad to be back as always. It's fun. Always, always love these, man. And this, this is a hot topic tonight. So we are so glad that deadly nightshades aren't tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, and tomatillos. Easy to save the seeds, though. And for so many reasons, they're awesome. And the good news is, is that these plants are self-pollinating, so no worries about your plants getting crossed up. Everyone's favorite vegetable, tomato could become your favorite seed-saving variety. Pick plant, save seeds. Oh, and eat the fruit. Yes, really, that's the way it goes with these. So we're talking tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, oh my, tonight. And I I know very little about them except how to grow them and save seeds. So I'm going to just turn it over to you, Bill. Well, thank you. You know, what can you say? Tomatoes, I think it was Michael... Oh, it was, I'm trying to think of his last name. He was the former editor of Organic Gardening Magazine Mm -hmm. for a while. And he had a radio show, but he calls tomatoes the gateway drug to gardening. Yep, exactly. Everybody wants to (laughs) grow tomatoes. And when I used to read the annual garden survey of American gardeners, and this was done by the National Gardening Association every year, (laughs) in the early days, they would just hire Gallup and do a poll. Of all the garden, you know, they would get a, a sampling of all the gardeners in America. Mm-hmm. And it's close to 80% of all gardeners grow tomatoes at one time or another. And, right. it, and it is the vast majority of what people grow. You know, there's, a, in other words, at the time, I remember back in the day, you know, less than like 8% of American gardeners grew kale, for instance. Mm-hmm. And yet it was 78% or something were growing tomatoes. So, right. So everybody's probably got some experience with that. But the nightshades also include the peppers and most notably eggplant. Now ground cherries, which are another one. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, Miss Molly's ground cherries, which are kind of like tomatillo. 
which are also, you know, really popular these days, they're all can be in there. And then we've got a whole other category of things coming in. That's, and I'll talk a little bit about that tonight. So if you think you're a really great tomato grower and you've done, you know, your homework and you've got your varieties and you know how to save your seeds, get ready for a jolt because there's a new adventure just starting. And that's the promiscuous tomato oh, project yes. that Joseph Lofthouse has yes. started. And so I put a link there to the World Tomato Society, which is helping sponsor his oh, very um, good. project. And so and there's some really great, let me just look here. I just some of the articles that have got beautifully promiscuous and tasty tomato project. Wow. And what so yeah. You know, one of the things I notice about tomatoes and peppers here in my yard is that they just pop up. Well, you're in Phoenix. Yeah, that's true. And you, you've created a somewhat, I'm guessing, understory environment for them. Yeah. yeah. It's not out in your hot sun, right? Or near the driveway. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, uh, you know, I, read, I recently interviewed uh, Zach Lokes. He wrote a book recently on permaculture and uh, what he's calling old growth food forests. <laughs> I love it. And that's so clicked in for me. It's like, that's what I've done here is I've created yeah. an old growth food forest here where food just grows. So tomatoes well, and peppers are, are both just, they just come up. Well, you're taking advantage of the best part of what plants are, and that that's is right. their ability to adapt mm -hmm. to their local environments. And so you know, for the last, you know, 70 years or so, we're, we got so high-minded in our science, we thought we were in control of things and that we could, <laughs> we could breed, you know, and uniform and predict and make things work for, you know, what we wanted. And it turns out right. what we wanted were large-scale industrial farms that, and the, the crops we ended up with were so uniform that they couldn't withstand varying environment so we had to put lots of water on them we irrigate them we have to put fertilizers on them because that area may not have fertilizer and then because of the uniformity they actually have a heightened or an increased ability to draw pests that could wipe out oh, the whole crop like right you know big food for another system if it's all exactly the same and so that's where all the pesticides and herbicides come from and so that's our agriculture. And so, you know, those like you and me and others are coming back around and we're going, wait a minute, if we just learn to watch and listen more and see what's going on, what we realize is what you're talking about is that we end up with these old growth food forests by default yeah. and we feel guilty about it, right? It's like, oh, I should be out there. I should make things more, you know, oh, yeah. but I forgot to harvest all those tomatoes and they fell on the ground. And if you're in a climate like yours, the next year, the volunteers come up. Just come up, yeah. And, you know, the science, when I got started 40 years ago, would say, well, you know, that's okay, but they're exactly the same, especially if you're talking about tomatoes or peppers. Chances are that the offspring are going to look exactly like the parents. We call that open pollinated and mm -hmm. self-pollinated, mm -hmm. right? There's not, we don't have to worry about pollen coming in from daddies over the fence or somewhere else crossing up our special tomato variety anymore because most tomatoes will pollinate themselves before their flowers even open. So, you know, it, it made really? it easier for us. Yeah. I didn't know that. Well, they, they are structurally designed 
so that their own, you know, stigma and style will receive the pollen before a flower even opens, uh, if it ever does. Interesting. Well, and that's the same for peppers and eggplants, right? Right. Well, peppers have more problems. Different varieties of peppers have more open flowers than others. And it seems mm-hmm. like there's some areas of the country that have mm-hmm. more cross-pollination with peppers than others. I mean, Steve Peters told me in the years he was head of seed production for Seeds of Change in Santa uh-huh. Fe, New Mexico, he never saw a cross. Well, he did, excuse me, that was with beans, which are self-pollinating. Oh, right. Peppers, you know, I think I routinely we were figuring between 10 and 20% crossing could start to happen, but that's far less than corn, which always crosses, right? You always have to be careful of something else. Exactly. And so, you know, we've been brought up with that idea. So, you know, you're getting your volunteers, they're falling on the ground, but they're the same as the parent. Well, now with epigenetics, you know, with with, what Dr. Bradley Tonneson has taught us Mm -hmm. that a plant can react to the environmental conditions in one year. And it does this in real time. In other words, if you have a really, really hot Phoenix, so what would that be? 120? Yep. For an extended period of time. Yep. Uh Right. And your your tomatoes are going, ouch, ouch. Right. Right? Like we all were. And so, but they change themselves to survive. Mm -hmm. They start to secrete different enzymes and hormones to change themselves so that they can survive through that hot weather. And if this is a, a topic for another night, but what epigenetics has taught us is they can pass that on. That one summer's reaction to heat can be passed on to its offspring. So those volunteers uh, that are good. coming up in your yard are mm-hmm. actually really special because they've been through your climate. And as climate changes, that gives us a chance to adapt, to keep up with the changes that we're all facing. And so that's why it's so important. And that's why we love your old growth idea. Right. Well, and so epigenetics is the concept of really any genetics, whether it be, you know, mammal genetics or plant genetics, it changes to its environment over time. Is that correct? Yeah. All right. right. And and so normally we think of genetics like if you're going to pass on genetics, you have to have sexual reproduction and actually pass the genes on. Mm-hmm. What epigenetics and epi means beyond what epigenetics shows us is that plants and animals can actually roll up their DNA in that season mm-hmm. in reaction to the environment, roll it up so certain traits don't express or other ones do. They can roll DNA out. So they're working to try to survive for the year, but it's that rolled up feature that is passed on to their offspring that gets passed on. And that's a really exciting and I'm butchering it as far as sign. I'm, I'm taking some broad and general strokes, but the underlying it is this thing is an explanation for what every gardener experienced gardener I know has experienced. And that is volunteers are better. If you save your own seeds for a few years, it looks like they're changing. They're getting better for you. And so now we have an underpinning to help explain that. But that's what's going on. And that's why everybody should. And we'll just say it from the start. Save the seeds from your tomatoes and your peppers and your eggplants and your tomatillos and all of your nightshades. They're really one of the easier in the sense that of predictability for what you're going to get of all of the crops you could save in your garden. 
So let, let's talk about seed saving real quick. And I, I have a, a quick story that will explain how to seed to save tomato seeds. So I'll, I'll want you to talk about saving the rest of them. Okay. Uh, I was recently visiting with some friends and he had these amazing small yellow gold tomatoes growing in his, in his garden. And I said, Tom, let's save those seeds. And he was like, what? We can save those <laughs> seeds? Like, yeah, yeah, we can save those seeds. So I went out and harvested a bunch of them and I cut them in half. Again, they're about the size of a, you know, about half the size of a golf ball. And I cut them in half. They were amazingly tasty. And I squished the seeds out of them. I just scraped the seeds out of them and I put them in a jar and let them sit in the jar for two days. And they got a little moldy on top. And, and what happened over the course of that two days is the, the seeds fell to the bottom and all the goop kind of floated up top. And then two days into it, what I did is, and you taught me this concept, water winnowing. Basically, I filled up the jar with water and I poured it out and all the gunk fell out. And I did that like 10 times. And by the time we were done, I had this nice little packet of seeds that I put on some paper towels and let them dry and bada boom, there we're done. Yeah, I call that a tomato seed cookie. There, by, there you go. By the time you pour them out, they all sort of form together into a little cookie. Cookie, exactly. Yeah. So can you tell everybody why we did that process that way? Well, they call that wet harvesting. You know, there's dry harvest and wet harvest. Mm-hmm. That's a big mm-hmm. distinction when you get into saving vegetable seeds. And that white mold that you saw on the top is actually mm-hmm. a penicillin. And it's actually treating those seeds for seed-borne diseases. Nice. So it's actually giving them, and this happens naturally. Think about it. Tomato, if you don't harvest it, just starts to rot like that on the the vine. The mold is co-evolved with it. It's in there. And it starts to break down the jelly. Actually, there's a yeast in there that breaks down that jelly. That jelly keeps them from germinating while they're in the tomato on the plant. We've Mm -hmm. all opened tomatoes probably at one time or another. Now it's seen where the seeds are already starting to germinate. Germinate, yeah. Yeah, they call that vivipary. It's a, oh, a biological description for that mm-hmm. process. Well, what that means is the jelly didn't keep them from germinating. It's warm and moist. Seeds are going, yeah. Uh, right. right. So until that jelly's gone, they're not gonna, they're not gonna germinate. So, you know, the jelly's gone, the yeast eats it off, the mold treats it, and you get state-of-the-art seeds. I used to really get a kick out of Stokes vegetable seed catalog, one of the old venerable like Burpee uh-huh. family seed companies that yeah. la- they're still around. And I haven't looked for 10 years, but I used to, you used to be able to open up the Stokes catalog and to their tomato section. And they sold a bunch of, they had their own varieties and uh, other, you know, well-known ones. And in the, right underneath the title in the, in the headline, it would say, and we treat our tomato seed for all known seed-borne diseases. Like it was some something really special. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> you guys, come on, be honest. This, it's doing that naturally when you do this, you know? Yeah. But anyway, that's how wow. you get value add as a marketing thing, I guess. Right. Yeah, exactly. All right, cool. So, and pepper seeds, those are super simple, right? You cut the thing Wait, open and scoop grab them out. The pepper seeds. Yeah. Now, if you, if you want... You know, fully ripe pepper seeds, they'll have a more dried or golden color mm-hmm. to them. Again, Steve Peters, who works for the Organic Seed Alliance, taught me this. That golden pepper seed color as a seed buyer, that's what he was looking for. And you'll only get that if they dry in the uh, pepper. Right. And so 
a couple of tricks. One is that in some areas, if you try to dry your, you know, peppers on the plant, it takes too long. The snow will come, the season will end. You can't do that. You can pull the whole plant with green peppers and hang it upside down. I always shake the dirt out, hang it upside down in the garage and let it finish that way. Mm -hmm. If you live in an area with humidity at all, or if it's kind of warm, you may get mold forming on the inside of the pepper. So what I learned to do, especially with the long peppers, is I I would hang my plants upside down and then I would come along with a razor blade and just put a slit down the pepper and, and so it opens up a little bit so fresh air could get in there. Uh, and keep it dry and then you it would dry out and then you would get the the golden pepper seeds so that's the holy grail of pepper seeds if you want to yeah. do that but i've been in a restaurant and bitten into a pepper before that was you know just ripe enough to serve and loved it and reached in and got some seeds and they worked and so that you you know probably not as high as germ but they do work yeah so i want to talk about that because if you find a tomato or a pepper that you particularly like, you can snag those seeds. You know, you buy it at the farmer's market or get, a friend gives it to you. You, save, you can save those seeds and you're good to go, right? Right. Now, there are people who will say, whoa, whoa, whoa. It could be a hybrid. Mm-hmm. How do you know? And you probably don't. Right. I mean, I went to the Chimayo restaurant in Santa Fe and the owner brought out a bag of Chimayo chili seeds from the Chimayo Valley in New Mm. Mexico that he grew up in. Mm -hmm. So we knew those were good seeds. But if you're just biting into a pepper in a restaurant, how do you know? Well, the answer is still save them. Right. You know, even if it's a hybrid, save them. It may take you two or three years to grow out a pepper that looks like the one you were eating or the one that you really want, but you'll get there. That just be assured that you'll probably get there. And it's possible that it's not a hybrid, even if it's called a hybrid. And that happened to me with a pepper called Gypsy. Oh, yes. F1 hybrid, which is a market pepper. It's famous. I first ran across it in Utah, I think. Market gardeners love it because every color of the rainbow when they're ripe. And so, you know, you pick them all in a big basket and everybody loves them. And I loved the pepper and it was short season. It was relatively cold tolerant for Mm -hmm. where I was living in Idaho at the time. And so I saved seeds and planted them all. And the next year looked all like gypsy. You know, with a hybrid, what will happen is that you'll get grandchildren Uh that may look like grandparents that you never saw. So you may get all sorts Uh of weird things that come out of it. But if they all look like the pepper that you saved it from, Mm -hmm. then that is not a hybrid. It's already been stabilized. And there are instances of companies selling what they call as hybrid seed. But they're not but they're not. They want you to think that so you'll have to buy it every year, but they've reduced their own seed production costs by stabilizing those lines in the same way you could any hybrid. And that is just grow it out year after year and save the seeds. Yeah, That's an important thing. You can do that with all the the nightshades. Yeah. Cool. So you kind of alluded when we started this, that there was some new magic coming down the pipe. Yeah. So one of the reasons that we always love to teach about tomato seed saving is that, you know, not beyond it being popular and everybody having a relationship Mm -hmm. was that it's easy. It's easy in the sense that you just save the seeds. And in almost every case, you get something that looks a lot like what the parent was, right? Maybe more heat tolerant in your case, if it's gone through a hot summer, but you know, we won't know that when we're growing it. And it turns out that according to Joseph Lofthouse, that was done by design. 
the tomatoes over a long period of time were bred to do that, actually. Mm. That uniformity was brought into most of our modern tomatoes by selecting for flowers that don't open and don't cross pollinate. Mm -hmm. And they've learned to, you know, the trait was in there already, but they didn't have to cross pollinate. And so they largely lost that ability. And that's really good if you find a tomato that you really love, that's really adapted to where you are and you've Mm -hmm. got its story. The problem is tomatoes aren't native to North America. And if you live in any kind of a fringe climate, like the desert, like we do now, or in the mountains where I used to live, or all over the place, or way up in Maine where it's rainy all the time or whatever, you are bringing what is largely an understory tropical plant of origin that's gone through some breeding, probably somewhere in Italy. That's where they think a lot of the major refinements that we're used to came from. Mm -hmm. And then it was brought back over here. And so if you look at it through those, that lens, it's a largely unfinished product. What if we could get it to cross with all sorts of tomatoes from all over and let all that crossing happen? Oh. That's like rolling tons of dice and then select out of that the ones that worked best for us that had the flavor that we want. In other words, let's throw the whole thing up in the air again and start over. Because we're here now and we can and we can pay attention. And so that's what the promiscuous tomato project is about. So how would you go about doing that? Well, they're on several generations now of crossing our regular tomatoes with wild tomatoes, other species of tomatoes Uh that have open flowers, big, open, beautiful flowers. In fact, you could grow them for cut flowers. Oh, interesting. In some cases. And they're saying... As Joseph says, I'm mimicking him here. They're calling in the bees, right? We want you to come and cross and mix everything up for us. Because when you do that, then we'll plant out hundreds of these things. And maybe only one or two have tomatoes we like or will grow or whatever it is. But we're finding in the whole genetic spectrum of tomatoes now instances that we can select that will work for us. And so this is a long-term project. This will be... You know, I think Joseph's in the end his claim to fame in changing things, but it's a it's a broad and beautiful vision. And at the yeah. very least, what it's done for me is maybe rethink saving tomato seeds. Now I don't care. I just save everything. I've got right. about six or eight or ten varieties. They're growing next to each other. Somebody yeah. normally would say, Well, what if they cross? And I'm going, I hope they do. Right. And I just found Two days ago, um, in my tomatillos, I'm growing golden ones, and I'm growing purple ones, and I found some purple golden ones that must have crossed last year, and they're wow. really beautiful. They're kind of mottled, and and they have wonderful flavor, and so that's so that's what I'm saving now. Mm-hmm. Those are mine, right? That would be an example of what Joseph's trying to do. So Peggy wants to know who is running the Promiscuous Tomato Project. Well, the World Tomato Society is sponsoring Joseph Lofthouse, and he has several partners and people throughout the United States that are actually, what he needs is people that want to grow out these crosses and the F2 generations from them. Was that you know, that article that you posted a minute ago? I, I think you can hack yeah, here it is right your here. way into it. You yeah. can also, let me, I can just pull up uh, Joseph's uh, Facebook page. What I find about Joseph is that he responds better 
via Facebook, yeah. To his Facebook. So let me, I'll pull up that link and put it in here. Cool. And so if you're really interested, email him. Joseph Lockhouse on Facebook. He's a busy guy. Treat him with respect. If you take on a project for him and want to grow some of his seeds, he'll say he gives away seeds or will tell you where else to get them. It turns out that the Experimental Farm Network is now selling a lot of his work over because he's not only doing this with tomatoes, he's doing this with all the vegetables, mm-hmm. mixing them all up and then re- and hoping they cross and then selecting out what works where he is. Yeah. And so if you want to get involved, you know, you can write to him. I would message him and say hi for us, but, yeah. um, and, but treat him with respect and follow through yeah. with your project. Don't bite off more than you can chew. It's so easy to get excited with this and say, oh yeah, I'll grow oh, like yeah. 200 things. And yeah, it's just hard to follow through with that. Start small. Yeah. Perfect. Well, let's jump in. We've got a bunch of questions here. Okay. So let's just go ahead and start, start with that. Carrie says, there are some seeds that people seem to want to plant directly, yet there are reasons to want to use trays. I like my trays to be able to put in sun or shade. Thoughts? You are in control. You get to do whatever you want. So what, again, to use a different example, Joseph Lofthouse has gone to the other way. Mm -hmm. He's saying, why do I want to grow a tomato if I have to grow it in a tray? So he just plants into, and 98% of them don't grow, but the ones that do, do, and yeah. they're producing tomatoes he can eat. So that, you know, you get to do whatever you want. And, and I learned a long time ago, I'll just add this now. I never get in the way of people and what they think are their favorite tomatoes or the best right. tomatoes or their methods for doing them. Those are yours. Honor that. You are one of the prophets. You get to do it your way. Nobody should ever criticize you for your way. Right. Andrew says, have you watched the film Back to Eden? If so, curious what you thought about it. Backtoedenfilm.com. I know I watched it, but I watched so much of that stuff. It kind of all blurs together. I don't remember. Yeah. That doesn't mean I didn't see it either. But if we're talking movies, I'll just type in the name of one. It's called Red Gold. Ah, okay. And it's about the centralization of the modern tomato industry. Oh. And how, and how literally, Greg, three individuals control about 85% of what? all the tomatoes grown and sold in the world. In the world. Wow. Really? It, yeah. It is so fascinating. I think it's called Red Gold. Yeah, I'll pull up that. <laughs> <laughs> red red gold on it's on Vimeo. Yeah. <clears throat> yep, red gold 2008. Yeah, if you want to blow your mind about the extremes of industrial agriculture. Oh, this one seems No, actually, no, that's on farming. <clears throat> that's on fish farming. Yeah, red gold's on fish yeah, farming. Yeah, no, let me get, right. get I'll find it for uh, you. Carrie says, "Oh yeah, and what is with peppers needing higher temperatures to germinate? Do people use Heating mats, do you germinate peppers that way? Heating mats do work. You need 70 degrees and up. Mm-hmm. And what I've gone to also is more time. I plant my peppers now a month earlier than my tomatoes. Mm-hmm. And I use a heating mat. Again, you're talking tropics. It's oh, called yes. the, the empire of red gold. Sorry. Ah, very good. Yep, there it is. The empire of red gold. Sorry about that. 
You can watch it on Amazon. It's got Amazon Prime. All right. Yep. Excellent. Fawn has a great question <laughs> that we absolutely need to address. She says, can you use a food dehydrator to dry seeds? Boy, you know, it's possible. There's no reason to probably, unless you live in a place that's 80% humidity. Oh, that's true. But then you want to dry them on really, on a really cool temperature because yeah, you don't, you don't want, want to cook heat. your seed. I was going to follow up. My dehydrator has a heater in it and you don't want any heat if you yeah. can help it. So it's better to let it take a little bit longer and do it at room temp. If you need to put a fan over it. Oh, right. But I don't. I don't know anybody that uses a dehydrator. It's yeah. just not necessary. If you put it on a paper towel, that soaks a lot of the moisture out. Then it wicks into the air. Everything seems yeah. to go pretty fast. So how do you, so Annette wants to know how you save eggplant seed, wet or dry? I added uh, the wet or dry piece. Well, you know, I do mine wet. And, mm -hmm. and so I will leave, let the eggplant, you know, mature as much as you can and put it in a blender, put the insides. You know, it's not, I, if it's a, one of those soft skin things, you can just mm -hmm. throw the whole thing in there. And it doesn't but, mush up the seeds? Doesn't damage the seeds? Doesn't seem to. Um, Might have a few of them. But. You know, so I've known people that have taped, put a little bit of tape on the front of their blender blades just in case. Mm. But with tomatillos and eggplants, I've had it work both ways. I don't over, you know, I'm not making a milkshake. I just crunch everything up so that it pours like a liquid yeah and then i pour it. it pour it into the jar and let it sit for three days deb wants to know so if i use the wet processing for to my tomato seeds tomato spotted wilt virus won't be transferred well you know so no <laughs> I, I guess I, we knows? can't who say knows? yeah i guess we can't say no it won't but it'll help it a lot right I don't know of any instances where that has been traced to being mm -hmm. the reason why it was transferred, but never say never in nature. So you never know. Right. Always try to keep everything clean and what you're doing, but it's a really powerful. I mean, that's why we're so powerful as a species. Probably one of the big reasons mm -hmm. is penicillin and antibiotics. Right. And that's what yep. you're using. So, yeah. So Christina has a question, but before I ask the question, I want you to, define land race? Wow, good question. Land race was originally a derogatory term that was developed in the 30s and 40s mm -hmm. when Mendelian genetics was being adopted and plant breeding moved from farmers and fields into laboratories mm -hmm. to maximize profit for crops. And when they started doing that and coming up with new, especially hybrid corns and other new, new varieties, their term from all that old stuff out there left with peasants and people who didn't understand genetics, all those old varieties mm. out there that were uniform or high yielding, those were land races. So uh. Joseph's got a pretty good definition. It's a crop that has a built-in diversity. It's got enough uniformity to call itself a variety usually, but it's got built-in diversity and it's adapted to a place. Okay, so some of the great land races that we've been left with that didn't disappear in this industrial hybrid revolution are things like early wonder tall top beets or Detroit beets, mm -hmm. things like black seeded Simpson lettuce. You know, if people are gardening at all, they'll recognize some of these names. Those are land races. 
Mm-hmm. And people used to talk about black seeded Simpson. I think Frank Morton, who started Wild Garden Seed, talked about this. He got he ordered black seeded Simpson from 22 different seed companies and grew them all out in long lines just to see they're all different. Oh my gosh. Well, of course, that's what a land race is. It was adapted uh, to different places. And I mean, that's, you know, it, if you're a plant breeder and you want uniformity, that's abhorrent. You're going, oh, no, they're not true, right? But right. if you're trying to find something that will adapt to where you live and it tastes good, that's good. you got 22 of those you can plant and see which one works best. So that's my definition of a land race. Nice. All right. So here's what Christina says. I'm getting interested in the land race Grex idea because my feeling is that every year is so different climate-wise these days. My question is to do with epigenics of that. Right. This year was wet for me. So next year, should I mix this year's seeds with seeds saved from a hotter year? If you're early into the project, and it sounds like you are, mix in some of everything for a while. Yeah. You know, what Joseph says, the magic here for him has been his third year. He tries mm-hmm. to get as much diversity and as much stuff going on, especially in the first year. But then, you know, keep that diversity in there. And then he starts looking really careful for in his tomatoes for flowers that are more open than others. He looks for off types and weird things, you know, that could bring other characteristics and flavors into what he's doing. So, yeah, if you've got that's what I would do, especially now, because guess what? Our climate is not only getting hotter, especially here in the southwest. Mm -hmm. It's getting wetter sometimes. And so maybe we need both those characteristics. Yeah. When you told me you told stories in the past, we've been doing this for dang near 10 years. And you've told me stories in the past of. I think it was squash. Somebody planted out many varieties of squash trying to find the one that was resistant to a disease. Right. Yeah, that's, you know, that's part of what we're talking about. One of the, I guess, one of the, the most illustrative story like that is John Navasio told me about black rot in broccoli and cabbage. Black rot wow. is a vascular disease that gets into the stems of cabbage family mm-hmm. plants. And so when you cut it open, you'll see it, the, the inside of the stem is just black. It's rotting out. Mm-hmm. It's black rot. And he found an acre in Washington that was known for this, that every plant had it. And he got as many different kinds of broccoli as he could and planted a whole acre. And the people around him were really skeptical. Going, well, that's going to be a disaster. You're not going to be able to grow broccoli in that field. And he goes, well, that's not what I'm trying to do. But so they, he said, you're just wasting your time. And so he planted the whole acre with all these different kinds, came back at the end of the year, and, and the farmers around him were right. BlackRock got everything except for four plants. Wow. Four plants out of an acre. Yes, those are the ones he was looking for, and that's why he did it. Yeah. And so we can use that kind of thinking. And this is what's at work when we're planting our hot crops, our wet ones, our cold ones. Save the seeds from the ones that survive. But then if your climate happens to be weird that summer, mix them back in with your others. You're you're trying to find something for the law. You're creating a new land race. Oh, my God. (laughs) It might be around in 200 years. Right. Carrie wants to know, so I have one seed from a certain variety of cowpea that barely grew and spit out one seed in desperation as it (laughs) is in terrible soil. 
this may be the start of a desirable epigenetics? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. You're the cowpea guy. Yeah, well, the, the real red cowpea is the one that I give away. Right. Um, and they're, you know, they like the heat. And right. they grow really well in the summer and they shade the ground. Right. You know, one of, one of the things I discovered about five years ago was that the ground temperature in my front yard in August was 140 degrees at ground level, 120 degrees, six inches down. That's enough to kill most anything. But underneath the cow peas and sweet potatoes in my front yard, it was 89 degrees. There you go. Like, yeah. And, you know, y'all have heard this. If you've been gardening for any time at all, you want to, you don't ever want to have nothing growing on your soil. You want to have something growing. It covers it up. It protects it. It nurtures the bio soil biology. So yeah. Yeah. Good job. That's on good. Coffee. So if, if I met a, a man in Siberia when I was there in 1989, who was trying to grow watermelons in Siberia, which was like totally <laughs> crazy. Right. And I was kidding him. I go, Oh, icebox melons, right. It's Siberia. And he, he was, he didn't think that was funny, but um, he finally, after years, got one melon with two seeds and saved those. And that became the basis of when I got there, there were kilo-sized melons. So wow. one of the things you should be aware of is that you can always, if, if you're only saving seeds from, uh, you know, creating a whole new generation of cowpeas that are yours, and you only started with one seed, Mm -hmm. That's a genetic bottleneck, mm. you know, and it's worse in outcrossing crops than it would be in cowpeas, which are more self-pollinating, yeah. but you're still hitting one. But just remember, you can always bring in diversity later. In other words, uh, I would treat that seed like it was the only seed in the world and grow it up and do it specially. But I would find other cowpeas, the same variety, get them from other yes. friends or whatever, and grow those also. This and makes at some perfect point, sense. You may want to Grex all of that and make that your cowpea. So I, I got to I want to know. I need to know what Grex means. But one of the things that I've noticed this year, and it's been about ten years on the cowpeas, I've noticed that a lot of the the so they grow like a bean, and right. I've noticed that a lot of the beans don't have fully developed seeds in them. Huh. So I wonder That's, if. Well, that could be a couple of things that you know, they're not getting pollinated. Right. And that could be because of the heat. Mm -hmm. It's just, well, some you know, of them are getting pollinated, but yeah, uh, you know, I should find another cowpea and get them in here. Well, it could be that in the morning as those flowers, you know, as the stigma is maturing and getting ready and the pollen's getting ready, it could be that that pollen only works until it gets up to 90 degrees. Mm -hmm. So most of your day, there's no more pollination. And then that would explain why your pods are only partially uh, pollinated. See, there's all good. sorts of stuff like that. But Very good. Christina wants to know, is it terrible to let my tomato seeds sit too long when fermenting? If so, what could happen? <laughs> when I got back from Siberia, I brought 60 varieties of tomatoes. And that next year, we grew them out in 150-foot rows. And so then I got a call. It's going to freeze. You got to get your tomatoes. So I got some friends. We rushed down to this field and we fill up all these boxes with tomatoes. And so they end up in my garage. And I, this is probably why I am on my second marriage. I'll just tell you because ah! 
<laughs> before I got to even putting some of those in buckets to ferment them, juices were running down the sides of the boxes and the boxes were tilting over oh, and it stained God. and permanently stained this garage in Sun Valley, Idaho. It was just like a mess. But, and I'm working as hard as I can. I'm a one man, one person seed company. So I was doing five gallon buckets of each of them, the same ferment method that you are, but I had five gallons at each one. And so by the time I would get them all set up and get back to them, it was weeks. Mm. And the white mold on top turned into green and black and purple. And the whole thing smelled like it was a dark. Oh God, it was horrible, horrible. But guess what? They all worked. That's my answer. I, I don't know how long it would take to actually over ferment them because yeah. I never got there. Now I had cooler temperatures because I was in snow country and it was in a garage, but I'm sure somebody else could tell you. What does Grex mean? Grex is a word that we are all, all the hip and happening gardeners have come up with to make sure that we sound hip and happening and nobody else knows what we're talking about. <laughs> right. It's the first time I heard it was Dr. Alan Capular, who started a seed company years and years ago, decades ago, called Peace Seeds. And a correct for him was a many times a carefully selected mix of vegetables that could include hybrids and open pollinated mm -hmm. seeds, land races, or whatever. And the idea was to mix up the genetics again. And then only select out a few characteristics. Your job wasn't uh, to make it uniform or a new variety. It was for flavor or to make sure it worked in your yard is what Joseph would look for. So when we do that, when we when we take these disparate things and put them together, now we're grexing them or creating a grex. Got it. Cool. Deb wants to know. So if I have a if I have a serious problem with blossom end rot because of uneven watering. And a few of my tomatoes don't display it while most do. Will saving seeds from those tomatoes pass some of the tendency to resist blossom end rot? I Possibility. Noticed, I noticed my glacier, guessing glacier tomatoes don't get blossom end rot at all, but most of my heirlooms do when I didn't water consistently. There you go. Yeah. If You know, so again, what would happen if you planted uh, 500 kinds of tomatoes and just selected out the ones that you never see blossom end rot. That's this kind of idea that we're working with wow. in this promiscuous Man, tomato project. When I retire, I'm going to have so much fun with this stuff. Well, I'm going to so, be a gentleman farmer and just going to, I'm going to go play with seeds. So I just saw, I, uh, Joseph uh, Lofthouse came to a, a seed school we did in Mancus, Colorado. Mm -hmm. And he brought his suitcase with his jars. And in each jar is a Grex. And some of them started with hundreds, if not thousands of varieties, his beans, his whatever. He's already found all these things. And then he'll give you a handful. So you don't even have to go look around to get all those varieties together. There are people that are starting to compile those things for us now. So talk about retirement fun. Wow. Man, right. I, I, I planted about 40 kinds of winter squash in my yard this year. I had oh, really? seen people have been sending me for 40 years. And so it was getting old. What do I do? I'm feeling guilty about it. I never got time to grow it out. I don't have mm -hmm. time. I don't have room. Like, you know, how do I keep them true? I just threw all that out, grabbed seeds from all of them, threw them into my garden, mixed up. I have no idea what's what mm -hmm. just to see what works. That's 
loft housing, my garden. And nice. guess what, Greg? I only got one winter squash. Really? Yeah. It's hard. I planted, you know, May, it got hot. Yeah. I don't know, you know, but the one I got is big and beautiful. Nice. Save the and, seeds, baby. And I don't have to worry about those other 60 varieties anymore. So I might I have, try. I might try them again. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. I have, uh, there's one more question here. We're going to address that. And then uh, we've got a couple more things and we'll wrap it up. Okay. Christina wants to know, I'm full of questions, LOL. I don't have an acre. Any thoughts on what I can do to enable diverse new genetic genetics, epigenetics to pop up without a huge amount of space? Yes. You're Tom not gardening Pe on an acre. No, but Tom Peters, Tim Peters, excuse me, Peters Seed and Research. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, this was before the internet, mostly. There may, there's still some of his varieties floating around. He was a brilliant breeder. One of those kids that got totally sucked into it and, and grew up doing it. He used to plant 50 tomato plants in one bucket, one pot. And then as the plants came out, he would train each one to go off the edge in its own direction. And he would let them grow out in different wow. directions until he could see the color of the tomato or its shape, because that's what he was looking for. Uh -huh. And he would save seeds from that one tomato, and then he would throw the whole project away. So here's a way to sift wow. through to the genetics of 50 tomato plants for characteristics, and all you need is one pot. So I'm just giving that as an example of how maybe we can start to think creatively about how to use our smaller spaces, because... Urban farming is going to be what saves us, probably. Probably. We could grow Absolutely. up to 70% of the food. And in Siberia, it's 80 or 90% of all the fresh food is grown yeah. in small backyard gardens. And so, we're, yeah, we'll figure this out. So I got to touch on something you said. If there's a breakdown in our culture, we saw that happen twice in the past year. We really can't count on our food system to show up. So this is why, this is why we do what we do here at Urban Farm is we really want to get people turned on and educated on how to grow their own food. Because you're right, growing in your front and backyard is going to be the thing that needs to happen over the course of the next 20 years. And so, it's fun. And mm -hmm. you get better food. Yeah. It's better tasting. You can wow your friends. Imagine inviting your friends over for the barbecue or the cocktail mm -hmm. party and they poured the wine and you're getting and ready you have to mint eat the for the juleps. Right. And so, and you come out with these beautiful tomatoes and you slice them, you know, here, taste this, right? Are these <laughs> heirloom? Oh yeah. These are, this is my variety. Well, what do you mean by mine? He says, well, I've been growing and saving the seeds for these for 20 years on my own backyard. Would you like some seeds? And they taste it. And it's like nothing they've ever, you don't have to argue before. with people yeah. about doing this. You just hand them a slice of your fresh tomatoes. <laughs> right. yeah. You know, and that's what makes it so fun. So no matter what happens in the future, this is a better enterprise. So I have a couple of requests for our listeners out there. First of all, would you please go to Google and rate Urban Farm U? We're really trying to build up our Urban Farm U rating. And I just posted in the chat box the link for that. You know, what you guys got oh. tonight was a free lecture on tomatoes and uh, nightshades. And so my request for you is everybody on this call, 
tonight, go to our the link I just posted in in the chat box or go to urbanfarm.org forward slash support us. And there's a link there. So please, please go review Urban Farm U and say great stuff about us because, you know, we're trying to build this into a financially sustainable education business going into the future. And that will help us a lot. The next thing, if you wouldn't mind going to urbanfarm.org forward slash support us, and I will put that in the uh, chat box here in a minute as well. We do have online courses. We have Seed School Online. Tell us a little bit about Seed School Online, Bill. Wow. Right? 35 years of teaching got boiled down into a 10-day Seed School, which got squeezed into a six-day Seed School for a bunch of years, Mm -hmm. which then got truncated into a one-day Seed School because that's all the time they had at the Fairview Gardens in California one time. Mm. And that one day seed school, then all the most important parts, we had boiled down to the essence of what people really needed to. We don't want to waste anybody's time. We don't have time to waste. Right. And that then became the basis of like the six or eight lectures in our seed school online that we recorded. So this just didn't come out of nowhere. This thing's been around and and it's been holding up. It's standing the test of time. So. I actually did the the live in-person seed school in Tucson in 2011. That's where this whole thing started. And that's where the Great American Seed Up came out of that conversation. And um, yeah, so please, if nothing else, and I put the donation review and purchase a course link in there in the chat box, that's urbanfarm.org forward slash support us. If you can support us in any way, shape or form, especially a review is free and it does wonders for us. So please do that. And then there's uh, Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance. That's an organization that you and Bell started. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, there we go. RockyMountainSeeds.org. Yeah, you can go there to find all sorts of seed saving information. You can directories to hook you into other people that are saving seeds mm-hmm. or teaching them or selling them. But the goal of the organization is uh, to have a region that gets all its seeds from its own region, from the Rocky Mountain West, you know, and and then dissolve ourselves because everybody will have exciting varieties in their own backyards. Right. And, Right. You know, it's just, it's really not that hard, this whole idea. And so I just want to mention one other thing where you can download a PDF now of Joseph Lofthouse's book there, ah. uh, Land Race Gardening. So you can buy it there also, they're $25, but you can download a PDF for $7.95. And the proceeds go to support Joseph's projects and then us a little bit. And then we're starting a grain school online at the end of the month and you can oh, find out about that and it's going good. to be 10 weeks of grains the graniacs are coming and we've got glenn roberts from anson mills who is like the most spectacular example of a grain teacher and steward in the country probably Lee Hahn is going to be there from the land institute talking about kernza the perennial grain project they have at the Land Institute. Mm-hmm. We've gathered up a few friends and teachers and they're all going to be on there and you can get a syllabus there also. You know, who's who's the gentleman that formed the Land Institute? Wes Jackson. Wes Jackson. You turned me on to this quote from Wes Jackson and it's on our on one of my Facebook pages. And basically what he says is if you're not thinking out a hundred years, you're not thinking big enough. Right. If you're if you're planning a project you can complete in your lifetime, you're not, you're not thinking, thinking big, big enough. enough. 
you know, and I think these land race projects, each and every person that's listening tonight could start this simple process of saving their own seeds in their own backyard and adapting it to where they are for what they want and end up changing human history. There are tons of stories we tell in Seed School about that happening with James L. Reed's, you know, yellow dent corn, you know, the largest selling open pollinated corn in the 20th century worldwide started in one guy's backyard doing the exact same thing. And so, you know, welcome home. (laughs) Greg and I have been sitting here having fun doing this for years and it's just great to have people come in, you know? Yeah. Well, and then there's the squash that was found and grown out by a, a insurance salesman. Which one was that? Yeah, butternut Waltham butternut squash. Yeah, was found by an insurance salesman in his backyard. You know, so yeah, never underestimate what we can do, and that's what we're tr- really trying to do is just empower people yeah. to get back what is rightfully ours, and we'll make our lives better in almost every way. And so, yeah, yeah, it's great fun. Bill, are you going to the Pueblo Chili Fest? No, Christina wants to know. No, I'm living in Arizona and I take care of my 90 year old parents and my dad's birthday is Saturday. He'll be 90. (laughs) Uh, Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. Wow. Well, happy birthday to Wes. Yeah. And he's still saving seeds for me. You know, he's still, (laughs) he goes, what was the name of that yellow tomato? I think it was from Australia. I was just over there the other day. And it was a yellow variety we got 30 years ago called Wendy. And it came from New Zealand. And it's a beautiful. Oh, I want plant. some. Wendy. It's about mid-sized yellow tomatoes. Will you bring me some seeds next week? I will. Yeah, we just right, saved cool. some. Um, All right, cool. The other thing I'll just, I want to end with this because it's a contradiction to what I was saying before. I'll never get involved in, with telling anybody what their favorite tomato should be or which ones are, you know. But I will tell you that yellow tomatoes, it was taste better over 40 mm. years and tasting hundreds of different varieties. And I did this professionally. I had my seed company for 28 years. That's just my opinion. Yeah. But yellow tomatoes right. taste better. And I'll just throw that out there for all of you to play with or to get mad at me and argue, there you go. whatever. There you go. All right. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining us. Thank you everybody for showing up. We did get three or four reviews i think that let's see there are still 38 of you on the call so please 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 go to uh, the link up in the chat and review us that will help us a lot and i guess we're done we'll see you next month we're next month we're talking about brassicas maybe yeah i think that's whatever they choose for us right yeah we just (laughs) they just bell bell just shoots us the topic and Janice puts it in the calendar and Bill and I show up. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you. (laughs) Donna says, thank you, Jewel, Elisa, Carrie, Donna, Christina. Thank you all for joining us. We appreciate you and keep growing. Bye guys. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the urban farm podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago 
then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.